you ever feel that God is invisible? That he is absent from the world? That he might not be active right now? Do you ever wonder how we should act in a world where others seem more powerful? Where governments seem to be in total control? Where God's people get sidelined? Did you know there's a Bible book all about that? Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be sharing my sermon series from the book of Esther. Esther's a book where God's name doesn't even come up once. But when we look carefully, God is extremely active. It's a book with conspiracies, uh, misuse of power, supposed coincidences, relationships and far more. Are you intrigued? Well, let's dive in, shall we? Esther chapter 4, page 503. Be useful to see that. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gates, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, In front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hadad went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I wonder this evening if you were to be asked the question, uh, how do you identify yourself? How do you identify yourself? When you meet someone for the very first time, what is the defining statement uh, that you make? 
Do you walk into the room and confidently say, hi, I'm a Christian? Or do you hesitate? Do you wish you could proclaim your faith boldly, but find yourself unable to do so? Or does it effortlessly flow from your lips without a second thought? If you're anything like me, you've probably experienced all of those scenarios. And when I try and think why, I can't really articulate what the difference is. As we delve deeper into this chapter of Esther, we're going to discover that the concept of identity is central to this story. This chapter of Esther turns on the idea of identity. Does it matter if an individual identifies as a Christian in this world missing God? Does it matter that I identify as a Christian in this world missing God? So before Easter, we left Susa in a crisis. Do you remember that? Haman, he's the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of God's people. He'd manipulated the king into issuing a decree to annihilate the Jews, to annihilate God's people from the face of the earth. Haman stood against God's divine plan, acting as the agent of the serpents from the Garden of Eden. The future of God's redemptive work, the salvation of the entire world, hangs in the balance. If this decree is carried out, there's not going to be any hope of salvation, no gospel, and God's plan is going to be utterly foiled. It'll be game over, no chance of redemption. Remember, the stakes are high. In fact, you could say they've never been higher. So how would God save his people? We're going to begin to see the answer to that in these actions of Esther in chapter 4. We find Mordecai, her cousin, uttering those famous words. Have a look at verse 14. You've probably heard these words before. The famous words that are capturing the essence of this critical moment. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. As I mentioned, the entire storyline of this chapter revolves around identity. What identity is Mordecai going to align with? What identity is Esther going to reveal? The author of this story skillfully weaves this theme throughout the story. It's worth examining the three key parts to this narrative to see how it all unfolds. So that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to think about this question. Does it matter? Does it matter that I identify as a Christian in this world missing God? Does it matter? The big answer is yes, as I hope you'll expect. See, just like Mordecai, just like Esther, we also face the problem of two different worlds. The world that conforms to the values of this world and the world that aligns with God's plan for our salvation. So this evening, my question to all of you and to myself is which identity are you going to choose? Now, like the whole of this book, the author carefully omits certain elements of the story. Things that we tend to assume are there because we know the truth, we know the story. But in a world missing gods, it is easy to be tempted to find the solution ourselves. In fact, there's some hint in this chapter that that's what's going on. And that is why it's essential, it's absolutely essential to reflect on our identity as Christians and to align with God's plan for salvation. And the beauty of this chapter, the real encouragement of this chapter, is that God works through sinners. Do you remember, we've said Esther has made some dubious decisions in the past. Things have happened to her that we probably don't want to dwell too much on. 
But the important thing here is that when the right time came, she made the right decision. And the same is true for us. So we might feel weak, we might feel helpless, but God uses the weak and the lowly to accomplish his plans. So my hope is that as we look at this chapter, we're going to leave boldly proclaiming our Christian identity without hesitation and trust that God will work through us to bring salvation to those around us. There's the goal. Shall we have a look? First of all then, let's have a look at Mordecai, shall we? Mordecai in verses one to three. You notice in verse one, that he learns about what's just happened in chapter three. He's been someone who sits at the king's gate. That means he's most likely one of the king's advisors. He has a position in Xerxes' court. But now he realises that him and his people are doomed to destruction. And so verse one, what does he do? Well, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and goes out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. His status, his identity with that of his people has been taken from him. And so he wails loudly and bitterly. That exact phrase there, used uh, wailing loudly and bitterly, only happens once else in the whole Bible. It's a phrase that is used of Esau back in Genesis after his brother Jacob stole his identity. After Esau had lost his blessing, he cried out, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. Same picture going on here. This is an identity thing. And you see that, you can see the identity marker, verse two. He places, he clothes himself in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai forfeits his place in society. Do you see that? No one clothed in sackcloth is allowed to come to the king's gate. He's rejecting his Persian identity for his Jewish one. He is aligning himself with his people. He is aligning himself with God's people in his actions. It'd be very easy for him just to carry on to just sit there in the king's gate as if nothing's happened. But he aligns himself with his people. You see that verse three. In every province, the Jews fasted and they wept and they wailed. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes, just like Mordecai. What's going on with fasting? What's going on with sackcloth? Well, the fasting, the sackcloth, the ashes, they're all pictures of death. So you read through the Bible, fasting is a picture of death. Maybe that's not something you thought of before. But you might remember it. We looked at the book of Job uh, not too long ago during lockdown, might have felt like ages ago. Do you remember what Job did though? When his whole life was taken from him, he fasted, he sat in sackcloth and ashes. And then his friends turned up and didn't help him. Just think, dead people. If you're dead, you don't eat and drink. If you're dead, you don't wear fancy clothing. If you're dead, you are under the ground. That is what the ash on the top of your head is meant to symbolise. You are under the ground. These people here, they are living their fate, living right now. They know what Haman's decree means for them. And so they all join together. They all join together to show that. On their own, they are dependent. They are helpless. Mordecai and the whole Jewish people here are all together in this. They're on one side. Well, that is one. Do you see that in the story? There's one Jew one of God's people who isn't doing this. There is one person who's not fasting. There's one person who's not weeping, one person who's not wailing. Who is that? That's our next character. That is the queen. Have a look at verses four to 12. You see, Esther has been able to keep herself separate. Do you remember right back to the start of the book, Esther's a character who has two names, uh, two personalities. She is Esther and she's Hadassah. 
She has a Jewish name, Hadassah, and she has a Persian name, Esther. And in this book, she is torn between those two identities. Throughout the story so far, five years have passed. We're told by the narrator that she's kept herself separate. She's kept Esther over here and Hadassah over here. Perhaps she's a bit like us in social situations. The Sunday us and the Monday us. Just notice how we're, how we're shown that. Just notice how isolated Esther is from the rest of God's people. Every Jew, we're told, throughout the entire empire of Persia, knows what's going on. But Esther doesn't have a clue. The first that she seems to know of it, verse 4, is when the messenger comes in and tells her, Esther, that cousin, that Mordecai, is acting a bit strange by the king's gate. What does she do? Well, we're told she's in great distress. Why is she in great distress? Well, you see in what she does next. Does she go and comfort her cousin? Does she go and tell him it's going to be okay, I'll do something about it? No. She sends Mordecai some clothes. It's as if she's thinking to herself, oh dear, cousin Mordecai has run out of nice clothing to wear. Uh, his washing machine's broken down. That's what's going on here. Let me send him something nice to wear. That's going to cheer him up. Perhaps being married to Xerxes for the past five years has left her accustomed to life in the Persian courts, as well as life with the Persian king. The ease and the comfort of the palace has made her unaware. But Mordecai doesn't accept the present. So we enter into this to and fro between Esther and Mordecai. Uh, one of the king's eunuchs is ordered to go between. Just notice that. So we've got a go between, uh, between a Jew and a Persian here. See, the author's really clever. Uh, usually we have Esther called by her name. But to highlight the situation, if you read the text really carefully, she's referred to as the queen. Uh, the literal translation of verse four is this. When the female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was in great distress. Goes to pains to not say Esther. Every time in the rest of this book, she's called Esther or Queen Esther. Here, it's not Esther, it's the queen. The author is showing us distance. And so we have Paul Hathak here, uh, whose name is quite similar to the middle in Hebrew. He's running between the two, uh, between the queen and between Mordecai. It's as if we're meant to feel that tension of someone going between the two. Which one's going to win out? Uh, your people, they're going to be annihilated, Esther, Mordecai says. But I can't go to the king. He's going to kill me, Esther says. It's lose-lose for Esther here. In fact, these are the very first words that Esther speaks in the whole of this book. The first time we're told that she opens her mouth, verse 11, there's one thing she knows, and that is that she cannot walk into the king's court without being summoned. And she hasn't been summoned for 30 days. So remember why she was summoned in the first place? Well, it seems her favour with Xerxes has worn off now. Esther is stuck, you could say, between a rock and a hard place. Which identity is she going to go with? One that's going to save her people or one that's going to keep her safe as Queen of Persia? Does it matter for her that she identifies as one of God's people in a world missing God? Well, the answer is Yes. And Mordecai knows it. In his final section, verses 12 to 17, we see a change. A change in Esther. She moves from being queen of Persia to Jewish Esther. Now, these words of Mordecai, as I mentioned earlier, they're famous. I'm sure we all know them. In fact, when I tell people I'm preaching Esther, uh, they've all come back with that verse. Verse 14, Mordecai says, who knows? 
but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. They say, this is what Esther is all about. Although I do want to be a little bit cautious here, okay? We need to remember, we need to be careful not to read more into that statement than we're given. Remember, God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. This would be a great place to say God, wouldn't it? Mordecai could have quite easily said, who knows, but that God has put you in your royal position for time as this. But he doesn't. So what is Mordecai actually saying here? Well, primarily, we have to see that Mordecai sees Esther in a position of a mediator, someone who goes between. It seems that Esther, in Mordecai's thinking, has the best shot about doing anything about this situation. One mediator going to face death three days, resulting in potentially the saving of their people. Let me just say that one more time. One mediator going into a situation facing death with three days involved that is going to involve saving their entire people. Does that ring some bells? Perhaps we're being told this might be how God saves his people. But notice if Esther doesn't do it, then deliverance will come from another place. It's really important we see another place is another place other than Esther. Another person, perhaps, in the court, we're not told. We simply don't know. This is all just left really vague. But Mordecai thinks that there's some other plan that might solve this. We're not told what that plan is. I've been going backwards and forwards on what's going on in Esther. But I think this is left ambiguous for a reason. In light of everything that we have seen as we read this book, uh, the connections that are going on behind the scenes, the Old Testament stories that we're meant to be thinking about, the author, I think, is giving us a big wink. I mean, who knows, eh? Do you still believe in coincidences? Or are you starting to get what's going on? He's taking these words out of the people's mouths and leaving them for us to think. Just remember, Esther and Mordecai, they only turn up in chapter two of this book. So there's something bigger going on. Now, Esther, she may have made some bad decisions before, but what matters now is that she does the right thing at the right time. And that's what she does. She agrees to the plan. She asks for the people to unite with her. Esther has connected herself back into the people of God. I mean, that fast there, verse 16, is made to sound like the opposite of the feasting that has dominated this book. Do you remember the luxurious banquets? Do you remember particularly that command, drink without restrictions? Now there's a restriction on drinking. Now there's a fast. There's no food or drink. Highlight that. No food or drink for three days, night or day. And just if we haven't got it, just like chapter one, we're then told the women did exactly the same. We're meant to see this as an opposite of that Persian identity, that Persian culture. They're showing identity in their actions. This one weak woman living in a world of exploitative power, living as an exile in a world, but not of the world, with two names struggling with what her identity is. She now at this very moment begins to identify herself with the people of God. And it all depends on her. Everything about this story is now going to depend on Esther. The camera is now focused solely on her. Does it matter that this individual identifies with the people of God? You've got to say yes. I mean, that's just like many other people in the Bible, isn't it? The Bible is replete with stories like this, of one believer saving their entire people. Just think about Moses. Just think about Joseph. In fact, just think about Joseph. Because 
Esther's closing words there are meant to recall that story. You see, as Esther says those words, if I perish, I perish. She sounds a lot like Jacob in the book of Genesis. Right at the end of the story of Genesis, Jacob is faced with the possibility of losing his beloved son, Benjamin. Jacob says in Genesis 43, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. That style of speaking, that style of speaking, this is the only other time in the Bible that such a style is used. And there's this possibility where he could either lose Benjamin or Judah. And in that situation, Jacob cries out just like this. In fact, the echoes are strong here. In that story, Judah, Judah puts himself up for Benjamin in that story. And here in Esther, if we're tracking the details, we'll notice Esther, a descendant of Benjamin, puts herself in danger's way for the Jews, for Judah. You see, this is a a full circle, if you track that story. It's a full circle. This is the people of God all united together once more, just like they were in the days of Genesis. And so in Esther, we see something of the shape, not just of what God is doing, but of how God does it. That God uses one person to do that. And perhaps God is able to do what he promised. Perhaps God will do what he promised to bring about one people from this people to save the entire world. And what is it that makes a difference? Esther identifying as God's people. This is the big turning point of the chapter. But unfortunately, we're going to have to wait and see how it works. But my dear brothers and sisters, this evening, do you realise the weight of the question that this poses us? Does it matter that we identify as Christians in the world missing God? The answers are resounding yes. See, just like Esther, we are faced, aren't we, with the pull of two worlds. A pull that means we must, we must choose our primary allegiance. We may falter. We may make bad decisions. I mean, this book is full of them. But the beauty, the absolute beauty of this chapter is that God works through sinners, just like us. Even when we feel weak, even when we feel useless, God can use us for his glory. As this one believer goes to stand between the people and the king, as those echoes of three days and three nights gets called up, as this believer is going to mediate for the people facing death, we see how God can save his people from this world in the Persian Empire. And we see, don't we, how God will save his people ultimately. Of course, we see all of this all the more in the Lord Jesus. But we don't just see it there. Because there is an overflow to that, of that to you and to me as believers. Not in a grand cosmic sense, but God has placed us, God has placed you in your workplace, in your neighbourhood, in Hemel Hempstead, for a reason. To stand as one of his people for no matter what. Does it make a difference? Does it make a difference if an individual identifies as a Christian in this world missing God? Does it matter that you, that I, identify as a Christian in this world missing God? Does it make a difference if I live differently to those around me in this world missing God? We might feel weak, we might feel lowly, but God uses the weak and the lowly to his glory. We see it with Esther too. God can use those who've messed up in the past 
to work his plans out in the present. I mean, when you get that, it's so encouraging, isn't it? You're never disqualified. So let's be bold, shall we? Let's be unashamed of our identity as Christians. Let's live in a way that honours God and brings glory to his name. Together, let's identify as God's people and be used by him in this world that is missing him so much. Thank you so much for listening. Any feedback or questions can be sent to podcast at david-couch.com and I'll catch you again next time.